6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 28 through 30. Okay, we're in Isaiah. If my notes are correct, we got through, through the beginning of chapter 28. The section that we're in, in general, of course, is a section between here, essentially, and chapter 35, including 35, is a collection of uh, some judgments that are immediate and some allusions to the day of the Lord. When we get to the next four chapters, 36, 7, 8, and 9, those four chapters are a historical insert. And that'll uh, set us up for the highlight, in my mind, of Isaiah, which is chapters 40 on. But in any case, uh, we'll keep rolling here. Chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of those who are overcome with wine. Remember now the historical context. Isaiah is primarily the prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, sometimes called the house of Israel, but often just idiomatically called Ephraim. Not the tribe of Ephraim. It's used idiomatically of the whole northern kingdom. And they're about to be captured by the Assyrians, taken into slavery for their idolatry. The northern house went into idolatry rapidly, and God is about to judge them, using the Assyrians to judge them. So while Isaiah will call attention to that and prophesy their fall, his real focus isn't them, it's Jerusalem, and he's going to use them as an example. Because the same thing is going to happen to Jerusalem later. That is Judah, the southern kingdom. Some hundred years or so later, Babylon will take over the southern kingdom because they failed to turn around. However, Isaiah at this time is pointing out to Judah to learn the lesson from Ephraim. While all this is going on, Hezekiah the king is going to seek foreign alliances in his fear of the Assyrians. And God on the one hand is using Assyria to judge the northern kingdom. On the other hand, he's also telling Judah, relax, I'm going to protect you. You're putting your confidence in the wrong things. And we'll get into that shortly. But bear in mind, Isaiah's a little difficult because you've got to remember where he is historically. He has such crisp visibility of future history. Near future, intermediate future. Near future being Assyrian captivity. A little further being Babylon's rise and fall. But then he also, in the same chapters, will reach way into Revelation 19 and talk about the day of the Lord and so on. So that's what makes Isaiah very rich, but also difficult in the sense of trying to keep in focus. You know, it's interesting, we talked some time ago about time dimension and so forth, how God is outside time. And once you begin to think on that a little bit, you begin to realize how easy it is for him to get his tenses interchanged. See, because for God, yesterday, today, tomorrow is all, he has it all in view. And so it's not surprising to find his letters to us commingling things that are going to happen tomorrow, a week from Wednesday, and a thousand years from now, if you follow me, you see. So, in any case, verse 2, Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, who, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, 
shall cast down to the earth with their hand the crown of pride. The drunkards of Ephraim shall be trampled under feet. And the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower. And like the early fruit before the summer, which when he that looketh upon it seeth it, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown and glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. And for the spirit of justice to him that sitteth in judgment and for strength to those who turn the battle to the gate. They also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Obviously a direct indictment of the local situation in Ephraim, and yet it's hard to read this and not say, gee, it sounds like a little closer to home, doesn't it? Verse 8, For all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. You know, there are some distractions about Isaiah's eloquence. Sometimes he's just a little uh, uh, graphic, isn't he? I'm fascinated with Isaiah because he's so rich in his vocabulary, and even in the translation from another language, you can just sense his, the richness of his vocabulary. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Those who are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Very reminiscent of some of the things that Paul mentioned in his letter. Are you with me? You see, there's a need to mature. When we first grow in the Word, we're in the milk of the Word, right? And the Scripture says you desire the sincere, unadulterated milk of the Word. Great, that's fine, that's appropriate. There's a time as we grow that we should be outgrowing that diet, right? I think Chuck uses a colorful analogy. You know, when, when a very, very tiny baby says his first words and he fumbles and mispronounces some early word, we look at that and get excited. It's cute, right? If 20 years later he's still pronouncing the words the same way, it's no longer cute, is it? Well, that's sort of the spirit of what's going on here, you see. To whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Those who are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. In other words, that have outgrown that first level. And uh, obviously the application for all of us is to think through that. You know, there are things that we first embrace and learn as we first get exposed, the gospel and to the scripture and at that first level of understanding. And, and that's great. That's exciting. And we rejoice in that. But after you've been in the word a while, the expectation, the reasonable expectation, is that we move on to what Paul likes to call the meat of the word. Our diet should get a little heavier. If we get into the meat too soon, it also can cause problems. So we very much can look at the living water and the bread of life, we use those terms, as a diet. And one of the things that I do challenge you to do is to stretch that diet, to in fact reach out and really gain the substance that's appropriate to your place in, in your walk. Verse 10. Here we have the illusion that uh, John made earlier was the uh, precept on precept, line upon line, comes here from Isaiah 28. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little and there a little. Interesting phrase. I've always been intrigued with this because as you study the Bible, 
you sometimes feel a frustration that a particularly important idea is not located in one place. It's scattered all through the scripture. And that, I think, leads to uh, some very, very important insight. I'm indebted to Dr. Alex Metherell, who is, uh, was one of the world's great scientists in the field of optics. And some over 20 years ago, he attended one of my first Revelation gatherings and came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we became incredibly close friends over the years. But he shared with me an analogy that I've never forgotten. You've heard me use it before, perhaps, but I've stolen it from Alex. And that's the analogy of a hologram. What you and I know as photography is photography with lenses. If you took a picture of me with my Bible in front of me with a camera, what you end up with after processing that photograph is a two-dimensional image of, say, me holding my Bible here. And in the analogy I'm using, you would not be able to see whether or not I was wearing a tie, right? There is a form of photography called lensless photography, holographic photography, and holograms are used to cover lots of different things, but I'm talking of the classical laboratory hologram, in which you have no lenses. You simply position a piece of film and a laser so there's coherent light, light that's coherent temporally, that is in time, and you illuminate both me and the film with that laser. What the film records is the interference of the light waves that are reflecting from me and that hit the, the film directly. Take that film and process it, and when you're through putting the chemicals on it, you'll be convinced you had a darkroom mistake because it's just a cloudy piece of film. But you dry it, and you position it where it was before and illuminate the film with the laser, and what the film becomes is a window into a three-dimensional space. And the analogy that I'm using, let's assume you did that while I was holding this Bible here, and you couldn't see whether I was wearing a tie, you could move your eye around and see around behind my Bible to see what kind of a tie I might be wearing. That's what we mean by a three-dimensional image. What makes holograms interesting is that they are what an engineer would call a Fourier transform of the space. In other words, the relationship on the film has nothing to do with space and time. It has to do with the frequency of the information. But what it means is it has some very interesting properties. Because first of all, you can take the hologram and cut, a, say, a one-inch hole in it. If you did that with a photograph, you'd lose one square inch of information, wouldn't you? If you did that with a hologram, you'd lose nothing. Exactly. Because where the hole is, you can move your eye around it and see whatever was behind the hole. Do you follow me? Now, you lose a little resolution. What you see will not be quite as sharp. Do you follow me? So you're not getting something for nothing. You're losing a little resolution. Why am I getting into all this? Well, because the hologram has some very interesting signal-to-noise properties. In other words, you can cut it into pieces and still not lose your image. Now, the reason I get into this is it's interesting to discover that the Bible is like a hologram. The information in the Bible, like the hologram, you see the hologram has all the information scattered over all the surface. Mathematically, it's like a gas law in a sense. The Bible is the same way. Show me the chapter in the Bible that's the chapter on baptism. Show me the chapter in the Bible on any subject. There isn't one, is there? But the more important the idea is, the more prevalent it is everywhere, Right? If there's some idea that's just tucked away in some corner, it may be interesting, but it obviously isn't central, right? Every key idea is scattered throughout the Bible. And the Bible is like a Fourier transform. Now, it's interesting. It's like a hologram in a number of ways. 
I can tear a page out of the Bible and lose it. What have I lost? Everything that I need to know is still there. I may lose a little resolution, but I still know who Jesus Christ is. I know why he came and what he did for us. You follow me? All the real essentials are visible despite the loss. Phrasing that in engineering terms, it's as if it was designed in anticipation of hostile jamming. If you're a communications engineer designing a uh, data link for our friends at Langley or Fort Meade or wherever, uh, you have a certain bandwidth, depending on what your technology you're dealing with, to a satellite or to whatever, you have a certain bandwidth. And in designing a communication system, you take your information, if you're assuming there's going to be hostile jamming, and you spread it over the available bandwidth. You don't concentrate it because that allows someone to jam it. See? But if you spread it over the available bandwidth, that makes it tougher. That's exactly what God has done with the Scripture. As you study the information content of this Bible, you discover several things. First of all, it's an integrated message system. Every detail has been designed. Sixty-six books by 40 authors, but one designer. But it's also been designed mechanically, structurally, architecturally, so as to anticipate hostile jamming. It's also like a hologram in another way. You see, a hologram, if I showed you the hologram in, a, in natural light, looks like a cloudy piece of film. It has no beauty that you would desire it. That sounds like Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Yet if you illuminate it by the light that created it in the first place, you have an image, the image of Jesus Christ. If you illuminate the hologram with a laser of a different frequency that created it, you get a distorted image, a false image. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Hmm? In any case, this is what Isaiah, I believe, is highlighting here in a subtle way, or at least is hidden behind Isaiah's phrase. He says, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In other words, God's truth is distributed through this entire book. And it's not just progressive revelation. The most profound concepts start right up in the early chapters, but they're packaged in such a way you don't stumble over them until you have the maturity to go back and read them. The last verse of Genesis 3, which says that God replaced the aprons of skins with coats of animals, it means nothing to you as you first go through. When you get through Leviticus and you understand God's redemptive plan, you go back and realize what he was doing. He was teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood they'd be covered, not by their own works, and so forth. In other words, you'll discover that the whole design is what an engineer would call reflexive or recursive. But again, it's evidence of design. It's evidence of an author, his personal care, and concern for you is why he's gone through all this trouble. Verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. This is an interesting verse. The local application of this, of course, he's warning Ephraim that they're not listening to God. Fine. Another country, namely the Assyrians, are going to take you over, and then you're going to have to listen to, and they don't speak your language. See, they have stammering lips and another tongue. He'll, they'll speak to this people. In other words, it's a, it's a sarcastic hint of their conquest by the Assyrians. That is a valid local perspective of what verse 11 deals with. And yet, Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, when he's talking about the gift of tongues. He's speaking there derogatorily. He doesn't want the gift of tongues within the community. It's something used to do. He speaks there in chapter 14 of Corinthians, the proper use of the tongues gift. But it's interesting that he quotes, apparently, or alludes at least to verse 11. Verse 12. To whom he said, this is the rest by which ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. 
But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Interesting, interesting inversion going on here. The same thing occurs in Matthew 13. If you recall, Jesus speaks to them in parables. We always learn that parables are wonderful teaching aids. That's interesting because that's the opposite of what Jesus' express intent was in Matthew 13. If you read Matthew 13, he spoke in parables so that they hearing would not hear and seeing they would not see. Because he said to his disciples when they were in private, to you it is given, to them it is not. So strangely enough, there's a parabolic aspect, if I may, with the parables. Same idea. And here again, you see, the point being that God's Word requires something else to be intelligible. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says they have to be spiritually discerned, right? Spiritually discerned. And that's exactly what happens with the hologram and the laser. The hologram is meaningless without the laser. And likewise here, the raw words will not be intelligible without the action of the Holy Spirit. And remember that. In fact, I apologize if I have mentioned this before, if I'm being repetitive, but I've come across this lately in a couple of groups. When you're studying the Scripture and you discover a passage that makes no sense to you at all, I want you to praise God and thank Him for the opportunity because you will have an opportunity to conduct an experiment, an empirical experiment in the supernatural. What I want you to do is get a little book, a logbook, a diary. Girls are used to doing this. They somehow seem to have an affinity to keep journals, they call them, or diaries. Guys generally don't do this for some reason. <laughs> There's probably too many professions where it's illegal. If you're in the Navy, you can't do that, for example. But the point is to get a little journal, something that's private. The intention is that no one will ever see this. Because what I want you to do is when you come across a passage that you don't understand, write down the date... And here's the tricky part. Try to write down your confusion about the passage. Try to explain to yourself, and you'll see why in a minute, that you don't understand this passage. List the passage and explain why it just, to yourself why it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Once you've done that enough to document it for yourself, then I want you to pray. Take the passage before the throne of grace and ask God to show you, through the Holy Spirit, what that passage means. Now, I'm not suggesting that the next 20 seconds there's going to be a flash of light and, uh, you know, a visitor that will say, by the way, see, you overlooked this over here, see. No, no, I'm not saying that. That may happen. I'm not going to rule it out. But that's not the way I believe it will happen. It might be later that day. It might be the next day on the radio. It might be some totally unrelated incident. Or it might be something you hear, you know, some preacher on the radio. Or it might be something else you happen to encounter reading something else. It could be a conversation you'll overhear the following week. Something will happen to cause that passage to become so clear to you that you will not be able to remember how confusing it was. And then what I want you to do is put that date down and record how it became clear. So that a week later or a year later, when you're discouraged or you go through a valley of doubt... Or something occurs in your life to just sort of give you a setback. You can go back to your logbook and remind yourself how God miraculously dealt with you personally. The value in that will be a function of how thorough you are when you date it and describe something you don't understand. 
You follow what I'm saying? Try it. It'll blow you away. And what you'll experience in an empirical setting is the supernatural agency called the Holy Spirit interacting with your personal tutoring. Not Chuck Missler's tapes or some TV preacher's crazy ideas, but the Holy Spirit personally taking you through the Word of God. Another important thing, you know, we sometimes talk about the Holy Spirit very glibly and very perhaps casually. The Scripture says that you should not grieve the Holy Spirit. You know what that tells you about the Holy Spirit? He loves you. You can't grieve somebody that doesn't love you. Think about it. Anyway, moving on. Got off the subject, didn't I? Sorry about that. Verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, be scornful men that rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Now understand, Isaiah is being sarcastic. The people he's accusing, and here he's shifting, incidentally, to the uh, leadership in Jerusalem. You see, Isaiah's been talking about the coming captivity of Ephraim, not because of Ephraim's interest, but to make it a, a lesson to Judah. You follow me? Now he's shifting his focus from Ephraim to specifically to those who are, uh, that rule in Jerusalem. You follow me? And he's editorializing their actions. Because if you ask them, they don't realize they're making a covenant with death. That's Isaiah putting into clarity the position they put themselves into. We have made a covenant with death, and, and with Sheol are we in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Interesting passage. Yes, indeed, there's a local application at the time, but most scholars who look at this are more intrigued with the likelihood that this has a second reference. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, speaking of the prince that shall come, this coming world leader who's going to usher in a false peace. And he somehow is going to enforce a covenant with Israel for seven years. And then in mid-career, he's going to betray Israel and usher in a time of trouble for Jacob, the likes of which they had never seen to that time. And boy, they've had a lot of trouble. The covenant in Daniel 9 end of chapter 9, may be the same covenant here, the covenant with death, and later on it's a covenant with hell, in effect. Verse 16, right in the middle of this, we're going to take the covenant here again, but right in the middle of this, Isaiah puts another one of his nuggets. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Interesting passage. Sounds very familiar to us because it is quoted so often throughout the Scripture. You can find it in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 32. It was earlier in Isaiah 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 2. But let's just pick a couple ourselves. We obviously won't track all of these things. In fact, what I'm going to suggest you do on your own, if you haven't done this, I'm going to encourage you sometime when the Spirit leads you, is to do a study of stone. Get a concordance. If you don't have an exhaustive concordance like Strong's or Young's, I encourage you to get one. Blow ten bucks and add it to your library. An exhaustive concordance, because you can take the word stone and it will show you every place in the Scripture it appears. 
They just track it through. You'll discover something very interesting. You'll discover that the idiom of a stone is used surprisingly, consistently, of Jesus Christ. When you've done that once, then take the word rock. It's a different word. Take the word rock and track it through. And you'll discover that the rock at Meribah from which the water came is Jesus Christ. It alludes. It's an idiom, in effect, pointing to. I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me. There really was a rock. I, I'm not trying to confuse you. My point is, it speaks symbolically or idiomatically of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? From 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that. The rock that followed him through the wilderness was Jesus Christ. Strange idea. Dig it out for yourself. But just to give you a flavor of some of these things, turn to Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. That's what John was saying in his opening chapter of his gospel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to the many as did receive him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Turn to 1 Peter 2. We could spend all evening chasing some of these. I'll just pick a couple to give you the flavor. First Peter chapter 2, starting about, say, verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? Unto you, therefore, who believe he is precious, but unto them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them who stumble his word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. A couple of examples. The most fruitful thing is to do it on your own. Take a concordance, spend a little time, and just track these words. It's fascinating. First of all, you'll not only learn a spiritual truth, but it'll also gain you a respect for design. Now, every detail in the scripture, every subtle phrase of these 40 authors in the 66 books is there by supernatural agency, by the intent, the deliberate craftsmanship of the Holy Spirit. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.